septic systems in the very back of their property. So it was separated with a fence and this little line of trees. And this guy let his tree die. Now, not that you can usually stop your trees from dying. I guess I can't blame him for letting it die, but I can blame him for letting it die and then sit for eight years. So now he's got this 180-foot tall tree, gigantic rounds of firewood, sitting in the middle of these two drain fields, and the wind's coming, and it's starting to do this number. And when a tree dies, it gets brittle after a while. And so he's watching and saying, I think that thing's going to fall down. And if it does, it's going to be thousands of dollars in damage to either my neighbor's property or my property. I need somebody to come take it down. So my boss comes out to give a bid. And he looks at it and he says, I can't climb this. It's impossible. You cannot climb this. This will kill me if I climb this. It will kill me and destroy your drain field. So they're like, well, what can you do, miracle worker? Can you magically make it disappear somehow? And my boss, being the man that he was, says, yes, I am a magical miracle worker and I can make it disappear. Boy, were we upset when he said that. So he show up to this yard. We spent all day with one tree. We got what's called a bull rope, a 10,000-pound rope, and we tied it between two trees, pulled it with block and tackle until it was super tight. The trees were bent like this. And then we got another rope this way, and we made this whole spider web all the way around this tree. And my boss went out on his rope and harness and ziplined out to the top of the tree, tied it to the heavy bull rope, cut it piece by piece, and ran it across this tension line to where we could drop it safely to the ground without ever making a dent. Miracle worker. Absolutely amazing. You're like, what does that have to do with holiness of God? Nothing. It's just a good story. It's just a great story. But I like it. And you're going to go home and apply this to your life, aren't you, Jesse? I'm like, I know what I have to do with my life now. I need a rope. And that's what we do as pastors. We give you enough rope to go out and hang yourself, right? Yeah. So the point of this story is the only way it was possible to get to this impossible task, the only way we could actually accomplish anything in this job was tension. Two points tied to a tree, pulled tightly. And this is what we're missing in the church. We've held on to the Jesus as a friend of mine, and we've let go of the holiness of God. And what happens when we do that is that we wind up swinging away from who God really is. We miss the character of God. And so that's why I want to come back to this idea of holiness. God is holy. Isaiah chapter 6. I preached about this, I think, once a year for the last eight years or so. The holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6. One of my absolute favorite chapters um, in the whole Bible. And this is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What is holiness? Holiness means literally, in the Hebrew, to the English, to be distinct, to be separate, to be set apart, and I like this, a class to oneself, a class to oneself. It's not like high school or middle school or college where you're like, you know, you're, you're a sophomore, you're a junior, you're in a class with your own little group. This is a class all to itself, entirely set apart, entirely separate. There is no one, nothing like this one thing, God. And not only that, but it, it also sets it above. Not in like, we've got white people, we've got black people, we've got Asian people, we, you know, we, not like this, and then there's God. It's like, there's all these people in classes and in 
cultures and in creeds and in colors and all this diversity here. And God is here, above it all, a cut above. He is holy. The word holy is kind of like, what is that? You know, it's, I, what do I like about the English language? The English language, we have a, a, a knack of finding a way to say what we mean, right? We'll say something, then we'll say it again, we'll say it three or four times, and we'll add exclamation points when we're texting people. You ever get those texts with like 37 exclamation points? That's really annoying. I get the point. But we, we do this. I, I even did this in my announcements today. And when I was looking, I wrote out my announcements, and I was looking through the announcements, I must have had 500 exclamation points in my announcements. I'm like, be excited. Say exciting things. And, and we're just going to exclaim it as emphatically as we can. And we work hard to say what we mean. The word holy is kind of like that. It's this exclamation point. It's this thing that goes out beyond words. We, we say who God is. We, we speak the truth about God. We sing our praises. And we get to this place where we see God and we realize that everything I just said doesn't quite cut it. It doesn't quite describe what I'm trying to say. It doesn't quite manage to capture the heart of what I'm trying to say about God and what God really is. So we got this word, holy. It's like Reepicheep in, in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis book. He's in a little raft and he sails off the end of the world and you'd think he'd be freaking out. But it's really describing this sense of the word holy. He's sailing to the end of the world. He sails off into Aslan's country, into the country of God. And he goes with this face of, of dignity, not fear. This is the word holy. It's at the very end of the world, the very end of our language, the very end of everything that we can say. And we just sail off going, there's nothing left but to say holy. And that's why those three songs are not going to be boring in heaven. Because we are going to be so overwhelmed by God's holiness that all we're going to be able to do is say, holy. Holiness is not something for God that's contrived. In our world, being set apart and separate is something that we contrive. We go to the gym and we work out so that our bodies, you know, we have our six-pack abs and that sets us apart from the people that have the 12-pack abs, right? Or the, the keg abs, you know, we just... We, we work to try to set ourselves apart in academics. We try to excel, to be the best, the top of our class. This is, a, this is an attempt at holiness. But God, he doesn't have to do any of that stuff. He doesn't have to contrive it. He doesn't have to work at it. He, he is holy. Holiness is a dimension of God's identity that consumes the very essence of who he is. God is holy. Completely set apart completely in a class of his own, but not just holy. This is the cool part. God is not just holy. He's not just a little bit holy, but God is a lot holy. He is completely holy. Now, I want you to catch this. In Isaiah 6, 3, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. The English language, we underline, we bold, exclamation points. In the Bible, what they do is they repeat themselves. So that's why you have, and I've said this before, anytime the Bible repeats itself, you should do what? Pay attention, right? Let's say that together again, because I won't want you to lose, I don't want to lose you. If the Bible repeats itself, do what? Pay attention. Exactly. This is time to get out your highlighter, your underliner, your exclamation point maker, the scissors to cut it out and staple it to your forehead, whatever you got to do to remember this thing, pay attention. 
So we have things like Paul. He repeats himself. He'll say it once, and then he'll say it again. He does it over and over again. It's his device. It's his thing he does. Jesus. Now, Jesus is a different case. Jesus didn't write anything. By today's standards, Jesus would be a complete failure as a pastor because he never wrote a book. That was a good joke that only my wife got. That's sad. It's a good joke. Man. Had exclamation points next to it. And so... How Jesus did it is he walked around and he talked. He taught, just kind of like I'm doing. I'm pacing the stage. I'm stuck. I'm like a caged rabbit. Um, I was going to think it'd say tiger, but I'm feeling more rabbit-like. So like a caged rabbit. And, it, you know, so Jesus is walking around. And he's got his 12, 12 apostles, 12 disciples. They're not apostles yet. 12 disciples. They're following around behind him, and he's talking. And Jesus is the Son of God, right? So everything that Jesus says is important, but sometimes he wanted to make a point. And if he was speaking in King... James English, this is how he'd do. He'd go, verily, verily, I say unto thee. And the disciples would go, wait, what? He just said, verily, verily. Quick, we better pay attention. We translate it in an NIV to, truly, truly, I say to you. Like, not only is it true, but this is really true. Okay? I don't just say this a little bit, but I say this a lot. So now at this point, the disciples are getting out their tablets you know, not, not, not like their iPads, but, you know, their little actual tablets. And they're writing these things down because Jesus is saying, this is important. And actually, in the, it's really interesting, is in the Hebrew, in the Aramaic, Jesus would have said, amen, amen. Amen, amen. Does that word sound very familiar to you? It's amen. Amen. So be it. This is true. This is what we say at the end of our prayers. And what Jesus was going to say when he said, verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, he is saying, this is so important, and this is so true. I'm saying amen before I say the prayer. And I'm saying it twice. Pay attention. Only one thing in the whole Bible is elevated past, you know, just saying this is true, to saying this is true, and I'm saying it again. Make sure you pay attention and get this. To the third degree, only one character in the entire Bible is given. Holy. God's character of holy. He is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And we're talking about angels saying this, guys. These are people that, things that spend their life in the presence of God. And all they can say, because God's holiness is so overwhelming, is holy, holy, holy. 1 Samuel 2.22, this is what God, this is what this means. Samuel says this, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside him. Isaiah 40.25, To whom will you compare me, says God? To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? Hosea 11.9, I am God and not man. I am the holy one in your midst. Our sense of holiness we ascribe special value to things, but it's, they're often easily defiled. You know, we set apart something special. My son collects baseball and football cards. I did this for years. And uh, I collected, the, I had boxes of these baseball and football cards. Somebody once gave me, and this is the weirdest thing in the world, they gave me a can of beer um, because it had the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team on it from the 1970s, World Series champions. And it's this collector's thing. And I had it inside my box of baseball and football cards. Now, my baseball, football cards, those things were like, those were holy for me. Those were, those were special. They were set apart. 
you guys all see where this is going. About three weeks ago, I go into the basement to get them out for my son to play with, to look at these cards so I could share these things with him. And this can of beer had corroded and it spilled its contents over my baseball cards. And so what did I find? Three fuzzy notebooks. And they weren't fuzzy when I put them in there. These things that I had held dear and held as holy were so easily defiled. Do you see this? The things that we hold dear in life, even our relationships, even our marriages are quickly defiled. But God's holiness is not like that. God's holiness is strong. God's holiness is his very character. And what's really cool about God's holiness, while we say things are holy and they're easily defiled, when God says he is holy, it's impossible to defile. And when something, in, when something holy comes in con, unholy, comes in contact with his holiness... In the Old Testament, we have things getting consumed by fire. We have people dying. Ark of the Covenant carried on guy's shoulders. Somebody, no, it's on an ox cart, and the ox cart slips, and it's about to go over. Ark of the Covenant, seed of God, Ten Commandments inside there. And dude, he's looking at it, he goes, it's going to fall. And he runs over, and he touches the side of it, and he falls down dead. This is what happens in the Old Testament when we encounter holiness with something defiled. But with Jesus... You see something radically different. When Jesus touches something unholy, he makes it holy. So we have tax collectors that become apostles in the church. We have fishermen who become great leaders and plant churches all over the world. We have prostitutes who become clean and are lifted out of their sin. We have Jesus walking into a town and sitting at a well with a woman who'd been married five times and living with a man that wasn't her husband. I mean, the, the grossest, the most defiled people of their time, Jesus came in contact with, and he didn't destroy them. He made them holy. That is the nature of God's holiness. But we still come to this revelation business. We see Jesus as this holiness that touches people and makes them holy. And yet we still, want, it, what, it, what we can do real easily is kind of dial down his holiness. When we see Jesus in the book of Revelation, we got John, the, John the disciple, Jesus' best friend. It's the, you know, the book of John, if you're reading through there, he's always going, and the disciple that Jesus loved, you know, he's kind of arrogant about the whole thing, isn't he? He's like, the disciple that Jesus loved did this and said this and this happened. So now we come to the end of John's life and he's on this island and suddenly the heavens are opened up and he sees this. Now this is G, John describing his best friend in life as seen in heaven. Get this. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And amongst the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He's like, I think that's my friend. It looks like my friend, but he's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. Jesus contains the holy, holy, holy of God. When we approach Jesus, we've got to remember, we're not just dealing with some guy. We're not just dealing with a religious nut job from way back when that had some great ideas that kind of shaped the world or defied the Romans. We're dealing with the holy God. 
So dealing with Jesus is dangerous. Have I sold you all on being disciples now? Dealing with Jesus is dangerous because when you come into the presence of this holy, you are undone. You are consumed. You are made holy. And that makes you a holy people because you've been in God's presence this day, because you're in his presence now. You are holy. God is not like us. The book of Job illustrates this beautifully. In Job, we have this guy who's a righteous man. He's a prayer. Not, he's not a prayer. He's a person who prays. Um, he, he, is, he is generous with his stuff. He's very wealthy. And, and he, he loves God with all of his heart. In fact, this is a guy that God looks, he's sitting, hanging out with Satan one day. This weird picture. I don't know where that comes from. He's hanging out with Satan one day, and he's like, hey, Satan, why don't you test this guy? Because this guy, he won't fail. He won't fail me. No matter what you do to this guy, he, he, won't, he won't back down in his love for me. I hope God never has that conversation with Satan about me. I mean, I don't know about you. I just like, you know, Satan, do whatever you want to do to that guy because he won't fail me. Please never, God, please. And so I'll, I'll give you this spoiler alert. At the end of the story, God was right. Job didn't. But along the way, Job has an interesting journey. He loses everything. Satan destroys everything, takes his family, his wife, his livestock, all of his money, gives him boils, his hair falls out. I mean, it's just, this is why I never want to have this happen to me. It's a horrible image of what God allows to happen to this man. Now, we're all wrestling with this, I understand. And maybe that's a whole other sermon topic of why God would do this. But, Job kind of gets upset along the way. Surprise, right? Surprise! He kind of gets mad, and his friends are trying to comfort him, and he doesn't, he's just no comfort can happen. Nothing, nothing seems to change his circumstances. And he, all of a sudden, he gets really angry, which we all do, and then he starts leveling questions at God. Just starts leveling questions with him. And I, I read, a, I read a, a, an article about the whole book of Job, and it says there's three essential questions listed out in that book. If you, you go through and you begin to tease out what Job is saying, he's really questioning God in three ways. First of all, he says, why am I born just to suffer? He's questioning God's wisdom and goodness. He says, why would me, a, a righteous man, suffer and lose everything when this unrighteous man, this man who doesn't love you, with these people who would serve other gods and would, who would hurt other people and build their wealth on the backs of the, of the poor, why would they prosper and why would I suffer? Now he's questioning God's wisdom. He's questioning God's justice, I should say. And then he asks, God, why would you see all this suffering in me, somebody who loves you passionately and not act? He's questioning God's goodness. And then God gets a turn to talk back. In Isaiah, or Job chapter 40. I've got to find my scripture so I can read this to you. I have it open here. I've got, I got Isaiah open in one place, and I've got it written down here on another. So, then God gets a chance to speak back. Job 40, 2, 1 through 6. Then, oops, back up, sorry. Job 40, 8 through 14. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove that you are right? Are you as strong as God? Can, thunder, can you thunder with a voice like this? All right. Put on your glory and splendor. 
your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. Then even I would praise you for your strength would be able to save you. Where am I? Got to find myself. If I don't finish up, we'll never leave. We'll just sit here and talk about this all day. Job questions God and God responds that I am not like you. You are not like me. You think you know. You think you see. You think you understand justice. You think you understand mercy. You think you understand grace. You think you understand power. You think you grasp these things about me, but you don't. Because your mind is entirely formed by the world around you. It's, it's a human mind that gets human things. And I am holy. I am a set apart. I am a cut above. It is so easy for us to reduce God's ways to our ways, isn't it? So easy for us to take God's thoughts and reduce them to our thoughts. Like, if I was God, I would do this. If, if, God, if I was God, I would make sure that no more wars happened. If I was God, I'd make sure that all the hungry were fed. And we don't get it. We don't, get it. We don't understand the complexity of what God is, how grand God is. We don't understand his mercy and justice. We don't understand that this God's sense of justice is not to pour his wrath out on you and I and destroy us all, but to pour his wrath out on himself and hang his son on a cross to die for the sins of the whole world so that everybody could be reconciled to God. God is not like us. We develop all these false images of who God really is. We get this idea in our head, like Job had his idea, of who God is. Now, here's a few of them. Let's see if you recognize any of these. See if any of these are yours, because these are all my false senses of who God is. Okay, These are me. I maintain them. I feed them. I keep them in their little places on the shelf and pull them down whenever they're useful. See if any of these resonate with you. First, God the negotiator. We can bargain with God. God, if you can just see your way to give me a job, or if you could just bless my family, then... I will serve you with my whole life. Then I'll be in Sunday school each week. Then I'll come to church on a regular basis, I promise. I'll even sit in the same seat so Pastor Jamie knows where I'm at. Right? God the negotiator. We got this. If you will, then I will. It's that whole Priceline negotiator guy, right? Shatner with the, and you know, he's got the great big monster guy with the white coat and the knuckles ready to pound whoever. This is God the negotiator. God does not negotiate. God gives, and God can demand, but he often doesn't. He's not a negotiator. How about Santa Claus? This one's kind of interesting because there was a, I've never watched the TV show Glee, promise, but I came across this online in some reading that somebody quoted in a blog saying one of the characters on Glee said that God is a Santa Claus for adults. Right? We expect God just to show up you know, jolly and round and pop down the chimney and open up his bag of gifts and just hear everybody gifts for free and, and never expect anything back, never expect you to change, never expect you to do anything. You know, it's, it's, it's like, this is Santa Claus without coal, right? It's no naughty and nice thing. It's Santa Claus without the naughty and nice list. God that just gives gifts. Ooh, how about this one? This is my favorite right now and where I've been living. God is the taskmaster, kind of a negative view, where God gives you a job, an impossible task, 
and says, hey, I'll show up when it's done. You, as soon as you get that done, I'll show up in your life. As soon as you get your, your Bible reading done for the day, then I'll show up. As soon as you, you love your neighbor as you love yourself, then I'll come into your life and actually, you know, make myself known. I'm going to give you an impossible task. Reach your whole city, and then my presence will be with you. God the taskmaster. How about God the rewarder? If I'm good, then I get... God, the combination lock. If I could just figure out what that scripture means, then I can get access to God. I like this one a lot. God, the dolphin trainer. When I do good, I sometimes get a fish. If I do the trick right, you know, God, the dolphin trainer. Or maybe God, the rabbit's foot. You know, if I carry my Bible around and I hope and I, and I just believe in these things, then maybe it'll help. It's this magic talisman that we put in our pocket and carry it around. God is not like these things. God is different than our understanding of who God is. God is holy. He's got many characteristics. He's got many ways of expressing himself, many ways of showing us who he is. But we often skew our view of him by not holding intention, his holiness, with these other things. And so we wind up with false understandings of who God is. Do I believe that God can change our city? Do I believe that God can change your life to such a degree that you are radically transformed and you are not the same person three weeks from now than you are right now? I believe it utterly. Because I believe that when we encounter God's holiness, we are changed. Every time in the Bible... Every time in the Bible somebody encounters God's holiness, it radically changes their understanding of him. We have Job. Woe is me, I am undone. And he's not just talking about like his pants being undone or his shoes being undone. He's talking about the very atoms that hold him together are coming apart in the presence of God. You have Job. You know what Job says after God responds to him? He says, I will put my hand over my mouth and shut up because I don't get it. The key to transformation in our church is not a better program, not a blue ceiling. It's not a football event. The key to transformation, to revival, to the revival of the church in America is an encounter with the holy God where we fall on our faces and say, you are, this is not what I thought. You are not the self-help God. You are not the dolphin trainer God. You are not my magic lucky rabbit's foot. You are not any of those things. You are holy, holy, holy. And I am undone. So what do we do with all this? I like to think of three, doing three things on Sunday mornings. When I preach, I try to do three things. I like to try to seed the gospel for those of you who are just new to this thing or just trying to figure out what you believe about God, I want to seed good news into you. Secondly, I want to feed every believer in this church. And I hope that this morning, understanding God's holiness has done that. Holy, holy, holy. And I want to lead the church. Seed, feed, lead. It's nice catchy. I made it up. Aren't you proud? So let's think about this. When we, this is a quote from R.C. Sproul, who, who wrote extensively about the holiness of God. When we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, 
then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and our hopelessness. Hopeless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in and of itself. If you are just starting to figure this thing out, why I wanted to tell you about a holy God is so that you understand in the presence of God, this holy God, there is nothing you can do to earn his favor. He is not God the negotiator. He's like, hey, you know, you know if you come to church, we'll give you salvation. Well, hey, if you say a sinner's a special prayer, you earn your way into heaven somehow. God says, you know what? I understand my holiness is so unfathomable. And your sin, even if it's just not being nice sometimes, is so completely counter to who I am, something has to be done about this. And that's where we come to the cross. Again, God pouring his wrath out on his own self in order that we might be reconciled to God. In order that we can come into the presence of a holy God. And not only that, so that that holy God can enter us and live in us. The Holy Spirit filling us and empowering us to live a holy life here on earth. That's the essence of the gospel. I'm not good enough God is far too good. I can never be reconciled to God, but God made a way. Are you reconciled to God? Have you come into this, have you encountered this presence of this holy God and been undone? God wants to meet you today, and he wants to reconcile you today. Feed the church. I think that in letting go of our tension, the holiness of God and Jesus is a friend of mine we've gotten a little willy-nilly with how we treat God how do I know when I interact with people in the church on a regular basis I hear OMG right put it in our texts texts OMG OMG oh my god oh my god and we're like flipping this statement out there and it's like a curse word in a way. It's just kind of meaningless. It's, it's like an exclamation point at the end of a sentence. And we capitalize that G at the end of there. And we're saying it's mine. And in completely, in doing this, we completely disrespect the name of God. It's the Ten Commandments. One of them is to respect his name. It made it in the top ten of God's important things. And we just live in this culture where we're just flipping it out there. Oh, my God. Oh my God, if you've encountered a holy God, you will never say that again. Our speech should reflect what we say and we believe. Our speech should reflect the inner reality of who this holy God is that we relate to. I encourage you, delete OMG from your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change your speech patterns. feed, we also encounter the holiness of God through doing several things. And I want to encourage you to do them. Isaiah, worship. I was worshiping the Lord, and the heavens opened up. The book of Habakkuk, prayer. Habakkuk was saying, God, there's so much injustice. There's so much unrighteousness. All of these things are going on. I am going to stay here and pray until you show your face. We encounter the holiness of God through engaging in prayer. I encourage you to pray. Say, God, show me your holiness. Seek, I seek your holiness. Show me your face. Suffering. 
There was an mmm, an audible mmm just now. God appeared to Job in the midst of his suffering. And in the midst of his suffering, Job had to cover his mouth and his eyes because he saw the holiness of God. And you know who else saw it? Job's friends. Community. Job's friends saw the holiness of God in Job as they hung out, as they sat. They, they, these guys showed up and they kept, they're like quoting Proverbs to him. And it's all just empty and hollow. And they finally shut up long enough for Job just to sit there in ashes and sackcloth and this horror of this awful moment, questioning and railing and angry at God. And they just sat there. And finally God shows up and his friends saw it too. We see the holiness of God as we sit with the suffering of our neighbor. When we get into each other's lives when we're hurting or in distress, when we lose our jobs, we're struggling with addiction, we're struggling with, um, with, with things in our marriages, when we're struggling with language, we, we, we're in each other's faces and loving one another, and we begin to see the holiness of God because we see God's work in one another. And this is what God is calling us to. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to send us out. It's kind of interesting, because how do you end a sermon like this, on the holiness of God? How do you end it? You just put a period on it? I don't think you can. Because what I've just done is describe to you the holiness of God as best as I can. And i got to tell you, I saw this on Heidi at the beginning of this week. I'm like, I feel completely unfit to preach this sermon. Because the more I'm reading, the more I'm digging into this thing, the smaller I feel like my understanding of the word holy really is. And that's a good thing. Because when we encounter the true and living God, our understanding of God, we begin to like trace these borders. And we can project, kind of like, wow, look, the lines of what I understood were here, and now they've slipped out like this. And if I follow those lines, it just gets bigger and bigger bigger and bigger and that's the title of my sermon is bigger because God is bigger God is not your Bible your Bible will help you understand God God is not your understanding of God I don't care if you're 60 years old and, and you've studied this thing your whole life God is still bigger you cannot have it figured out and that's why there's always something to say about God you don't have it figured out. So how do we end a sermon like this? We pray. We pray and ask God to continue to expand our horizons, to expand our understanding. We ask God to, to take his holiness and reveal it to us so that we understand the cross in a new light. We ask God's holiness to show up in such a way that it changes our mouth and our mind and our hearts. And that's what I'm going to pray over you, a dangerous prayer that you would encounter the holiness of God. Father, I ask that your spirit would show up in these people's lives this week. That what we've heard this day would not just be a, a, a funny sermon or an interesting sermon with great historical value um, by a really great pastor. You know, we, we pray that all of that would go away and that your holiness would transcend it. That your holiness would, we just pray even as we walk up to the backspace, that we could just hit your holiness that we would find places um, in our day, in our week, 
where we're just praying or we're worshiping or we're with our neighbor and we would encounter the holiness of God and we would fall down as though we are dead because we are undone in your presence. But as we do, we would touch you and you would make us holy. God, I pray for those hearts that are wondering where they're at with you and where they should be. I pray that your holiness would, would reveal to them their own brokenness, but the goodness and glory of your grace that saves us despite our brokenness. God, I pray that you would change us, that you would restore us, and that you would revive again this church as we encounter the holiness of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. If you have questions about this sermon, if you have questions about salvation, I'll, I'll just invite you to come talk to me after the service today. I'd love to, to talk with you more about it. And there are others here that would like to talk with you as well. So you can talk to pretty much anybody here. Um, go in the grace of our Lord. We're going to just play some music. It's a little late. Get your kids so they don't eat our walls. And uh, come back next week. Go Hawks. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>